0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: So a new drug's doing the rounds, and it's got scientists worried. It's kind of like ketamine, and people buying it think that's what it is. But what exactly is CanCat? G'day, Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. In a bit, we're going to ask the experts who've discovered this mystery drug in Canberra. Also coming up, get ready, we're diving into your memories. What do memories tell us about ourselves? And are they actually as accurate as we think they are? First, though,
2: hack. If you only had yourself for company for six days apart from people occasionally popping in and giving you men, I feel like anyone would be making up pretend voices in their head to talk to at that point. On Triple J.
1: You know, mental illness is something so many Australians deal with every day, whether it's you or someone close to you. And hopefully there's help around. It's something you're able to manage. But for some, mental illness can be debilitating and they need life-saving support at hospitals or other facilities. And when things get really bad, restrictive interventions are sometimes used to keep staff and patients safe. But it's controversial. Some reckon the use of seclusion and restraint is overused, especially in regional Australia. And some experts are calling for these practices to be phased out altogether. Our Tassie reporter, April McLennan, has more. And just a heads up, this story does and c- contain sorry, some distressing stuff. So if you might be affected, a good idea to tune out for a few minutes. I
2: was yelling for help because I thought I was being possessed. I had a lot of... Um hallucinations and the yelling was being perceived as um, being aggressive when it was me calling out for help and need and wanting help from them. And I wasn't moving from the bed, I wasn't trying to run, I was wanting to cooperate with them.
0: I want you to meet Aon Walker. They're talking about when they were restrained in hospital earlier this year. So restraints when a person is restricted by physical or mechanical means. Mechanical restraint is done with devices like belts, harnesses, sheets and straps, while physical restraint is when a healthcare worker uses a hands-on approach to stop someone from moving.
2: Yeah, I was freaking out, thinking that, like, I must be getting restrained because I'm getting possessed by demons. Like, I was convinced that, like, oh, that's definitely happened because I'm being restrained. Why else would I be restrained unless I was not being me? Aion was first
0: diagnosed with mental illness when they were just 12 years old. Over the years, their mental healths rolled in waves, very much up and down. In this moment, Aeon says they didn't try and move from the bed, they didn't try and run, and they were wanting to cooperate with hospital staff.
2: There were these big Velcro straps across both my arms and my legs, my torso as well, and had, like, five big, like strong people and because it's during these times they're wearing masks and have these blue gloves and it, they look pretty intimidating like that. Five people picked me up and dragged me to the other bed.
0: Aon says they were then injected with a medication but hospital staff didn't tell them what the injection was or why they were being restrained. Over the past decade, the number of seclusion and mechanical restraint events has fallen in specialised acute public hospital mental health services, while the use of physical restraint has remained about the same. According to the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, during the 2020-21 period, there were 12,371 seclusion events and 19,690 occurrences of physical restraint with outer regional and remote areas having the highest rate of seclusion and physical restraint in the country. However, some numbers can spike because of a small number of patients having a higher rate of seclusion and restraint events.
3: Staff don't go into mental health nursing, for example, because they want to restrain people, they go because they want to help them.
0: That's Craig Wallace. He's the CEO of the Victorian Mental Illness Awareness Council. Craig says there's a workforce shortage across the mental health care system and rural and regional areas have an extra tough time attracting and retaining staff.
3: It may mean that people um, who are um, in distress and seeking support aren't getting um, help within a hospital setting as quickly as they would like or as much as they would like. This can lead to further deterioration um, in their, their health. Um, which may lead to the instances where staff feel that it's necessary to use those restrictive practices.
0: In fact, someone who knows about this firsthand is Nick Housen. He's a nurse in Western Sydney and he's been working in the mental health space for about seven years. Nick agrees they need more staff in hospitals.
3: Patients in these mental health care settings are not like a patient that you have in a medical or surgical ward where you go in and you have a brief chat to them and see what's going on with them. Quite often we're with people for half an hour to an hour at a time. And when you're juggling half an hour to an hour for six people, time becomes really tight and quite often gets away from you.
0: In each state and territory around the country, there's different mental health related legislation that outlines when restrictive practices can be used. Used. These may include assessments and authorization by a psychologist or senior nurse, but in some jurisdictions, a nurse can use these interventions without other approvals or assessments if they think the person may harm themselves or others. Nick says it's a last resort.
3: I don't mean self-harm or suicide i mean risk to themselves in the sense that if they hurt somebody and they end up in jail or they end up charged with assault or, or something like that that's that's the risk we're trying to mitigate yeah, it's, it's easier and better for the individual if they spend a brief couple of hours in a seclusion room in a mental health facility with medication and support and observation on site than seriously injure somebody and end up in jail
0: Craig is really concerned by any use of restrictive intervention. He thinks it should be eliminated as quickly as possible.
3: So that we can have a mental health system where service users don't feel um, punished for going through a really hard time in their lives.
0: But Nick says, as a nurse in this sector, he doesn't think they can remove these interventions while they're still needed.
3: Overall, that rate, however, is still down on what it was five, six, seven years ago, which is fantastic to see. In my my life of being a nurse, I've seen seclusion go from a regular occurrence to a quite an irregular occurrence in wards, which has been a fantastic change. But occasionally we do still need to use it, unfortunately. Hack on Triple J.
1: April McLennan with that story. I want to get into this issue a bit more now. And with us is someone who knows a lot about seclusion and restraint practices in Australia. Simon Cattell is a mental health and human rights advocate, and he's with us. Hey, Simon, thanks for joining us on Hack. Hey, awesome to be here. Very simply, I guess, do you think we should be using restraint and seclusion as part of mental health treatment?
4: No, nah, look, I, I, honestly, I don't think so. It breaches basic human rights that everyone, including people who have mental health issues and psychological distress, um, are meant to get. And it causes profound trauma to people. And I uh, just to ask, it's kind of tr- obvious that um, you can't provide mental health care by traumatising people. So I think we need to ask some big questions and we need to look at what are some reasonable alternatives. Some people have gone a long way to eliminating it. And I think we can do that.
1: Yeah. What kinds of impact does it have on people? I mean, we just heard a little, bit about that in a, in the story about someone who's experienced it. But I mean, are they are they long standing impacts? Are there a lot of complaints from people who've had this done to them?
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, the, I've got my own lived experience of mental health issues, but not a forced treatment. And so, when you talk to folks who've Who've had that experience, they talk about lifelong trauma associated with the use of it. Um, when you hear them talk about it, they talk about the, the fact that it makes them feel helpless, um, You know the impact of nightmares that go on um, as a result of it. And then people have legitimate fears of services um, as a result of that. Uh, I mean, it's also mundane kind of stuff about how the system just on a general level disempowers people. You know, I worked as an advocate on those units um, where people were experiencing that forced treatment and disempowerment is kind of built into the routine operation of the system um, and so you know it's, it's not an exception it's kind of the rule um, that the, the notion of force within care and you asked about complaints well yeah people make a lot of complaints each state and territory um, has different ways to make complaints um, but they're all not very good Um, Victoria's probably got the best. So we've got like a Mental Health Complaints Commission and they oversee the whole system. They've got heaps of powers to protect human rights. The problem is they haven't. So in the last eight years here in Victoria, they've had 14,000 complaints and inquiries, often alleging serious human rights abuses. But in that time, they've never issued a single compliance notice to enforce the law and protect people. So that's 14,000 complaints and inquiries. So, you know, we we talk a lot about some of these other factors, but when that's what people at the top are doing, it's no wonder that there's people in the system regularly breaching human rights.
1: We've got some messages coming through. Somebody says, my best friend had this happen to them. Now they won't even consider going to a therapist. Another person says, what about sensory rooms in hospitals? They can help regulate. There's got to be more alternative options that are less traumatizing. That was from Elisa in Melbourne. Simon, so, mean, I wanted to ask you, I mean, there might be some listening now thinking, sure, it's not ideal. Um, In an ideal world, this wouldn't happen. But healthcare workers are under enormous stress. That's been made very clear over the past couple of years. They need to protect themselves. They probably have no other choice. How would you respond to that?
4: Yeah, I mean, mate, the job is super hard and people want to feel safe at work. Um, I'd query whether this stuff is often used as a last resort and having sort of worked on those units for a while. Um, I think part of the issue is that, um, you know, these services and, and, and individuals get into, into habits of bad practice, and that in effect creates spirals of violence. And so by that, I mean, the system uses violence against people um, with mental health issues. And then those people speak up, you know, maybe they speak up 14,000 times, as we've noted, they're not heard. And so in the absence of having any other options, they think that violence is a way to communicate. It's a really kind of transactional system. But we can, like, we can totally get out of that cycle. Um, we often talk about this stuff as like safety versus human rights, and I think you've, you've highlighted there. A lot of people see it that way. But, you know, when you look at the, the evidence, the evidence is really clear that you often only get safety through human rights, and that is by trying to reduce a lot of the human rights limitations within um, mental health inpatient units, there's less likely um, going to be tension, stress within that unit and less likely that people are going to resort to violence. So you can only get safety through human rights, would be my response.
1: We've heard a lot about this in Victoria, for example, because there was a Royal Commission in that state. It recommended restraint and seclusion be cut back or stopped altogether. Is that actually happening?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, you've got to commend the the government for sticking with the goal. Um, It should be shorter than 10 years, um, which is the timeline we've got here long short is is no we're not the rates aren't dropping to the level you'd expect there's lots of reasons for that part of its funding um you know services haven't been funded well enough part of its culture part of it's also parent and privilege in the system between the people who use the system and the people who administer the system and then the other part of it is um, you know bad law and as I noted earlier badly enforced law so all of those forces come together to kind of keep the system exactly as it is.
1: We've got some more messages coming through. Someone says, this is so complicated. I work in mental health. No one who works in mental health wants to use these practices, but staff being assaulted on mental health wards unfortunately still does occur. Another person, a paramedic, says, I understand it can be traumatising for patients to be restrained, but transporting an aggressive patient with acute psychosis in the back of an enclosed ambulance without restraints is a huge safety risk. And Lilith in Doncaster says, where's the trauma-informed care in these restrictive conditions. Do you think that a part of the issue as well is that there's no nationally consistent approach here, Simon, that you know we are hearing little bits about it in one state and then in whole other jurisdictions, we don't know what's going on?
4: Yeah, I think we don't have a national approach to it. We? we don't often measure all the things we need to. So we don't measure, for example, chemical restraint, um, which is where you kind of drug people to control their behaviour. You know, and so you have really horrible instances of people being put in induced coma and then being given electroconvulsive treatment to manage their behaviour. But we don't measure how often that kind of stuff is happening. Um, and so, you know, I could totally empathise with um, folks out in the front line there who feel like this stuff is the, the only option. But there's actually lots of other places in Australia and lots of other places overseas where they've um, dramatically reduced this stuff um, and the use of force and maintain safety for people at the same time. So I just ask those people, it's totally doable. And the question isn't, did you come to work to do that stuff? It, the question is, how can I minimise this stuff um, as best I can within the environment I work in? So I think we've got to shift our attention from a question of how, not a question of if.
1: It's a really important conversation. We're hearing from all sorts of people from both sides of this and we appreciate your insight as well. Mental health and human rights advocate Simon Cattell, thanks very much for joining us on Hack. And remember, if you or someone you know needs help, you can always get Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hack. scientists at Australia's first fixed drug testing site detected the drug
0: and named it CanKet as it shares similar qualities to ketamine. I'm, I'm
5: Triple, Triple J. J.
1: You know, pretty soon after Australia's first pill-testing service opened in Canberra earlier this year, we started to get a better picture of exactly what's in the recreational illicit drugs people are using around the country. The first results revealed a whole lot. You know, what's being sold as MDMA often isn't MDMA. Some methamphetamine was actually sugar. Samples of cocaine had no cocaine in them at all. But now there's an interesting finding that's making headlines. Are new illicit drugs being discovered? They've called it CanCat because it was found in Canberra and it's similar to ketamine, but there's still a lot we don't know about this drug. And I want to find out a bit more. Professor Malcolm McLeod from ANU is with us now. Hey, Malcolm, thanks for joining us on HACK. G'day. What is CanCat?
5: Well, it's a ketamine derivative. Uh, it's got small changes in the structure, so it's not ketamine itself, it's something a bit different. And uh, it's uh, not really well known. Uh, there's, there's one or two reports around of, of this substance prior, um, one out of a Chinese lab, uh, forensic lab, for example, a seizure. Um, but other than that, there's almost nothing known about this compound.
1: Right. So it had been picked up before overseas, but this was the first time in Australia that we
5: that we're, that we're aware of, yeah. Okay. Yep.
1: And how did you pick it up? Was it someone coming in and they thought they had ketamine, they were testing that? Yeah,
5: that's right. So uh, we had a client come into our, uh, our drug checking service uh, and they presented a substance they thought was ketamine. Uh, we actually have instrumentation on site that's um, specifically calibrated to to detect and, 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 and tell the purity of ketamine. Um, and so we knew right away that it wasn't ketamine. Uh, but of course that left the question of, you know, what is it? Uh, and, and we weren't sure at, at that stage. Um, so what we did then, uh, of course, of course that's, a, that's an interesting conversation to have with the client, I guess. We've got, you haven't got yeah. ketamine, you've got something else. But uh, then, we, then we brought it back to the lab at ANU and did a whole lot of other uh, science, I guess, to, to work out the structure. Um, and it turns out to be a pretty unusual one.
1: So if it's similar to ketamine, is it safe to assume, I mean, it's probably safe to assume nothing, but will the effects be the same, the long-term effects, the short-term effects?
5: Yeah, and we really don't know. So there's certainly nothing, uh, nothing known in the, you know, the scientific literature about, about the short or long-term effects. Uh, There are now there's some emerging um, sort of subjective uh, reports from, from users perhaps, but, but they can vary as well. So I think it's a bit unclear. Um, Certainly the long-term effects we would, we would, we would we would have no idea, really. Yep.
1: And also, um, and what, sorry, also not knowing how widespread this is. Like, we know it's been picked up in Canberra, but that's because that's the only place that people are bringing in their drugs to be tested like this.
5: That's right. I mean, uh, you know, there are the there are other methods to un- uncover the identity of drugs through um, you know police seizures and things of that nature. But typically, that information um, doesn't get back to the 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 population as, as quickly perhaps um so yeah i think i think the the drug checking service that um canberra has done a good job of I- identifying this um you're right it could be in other jurisdictions and we we just don't know so um it's it's one to be mindful of
1: yep what should people do if they think they've got something that isn't what they thought it was
5: well, uh, if you're in the Canberra region, you should come in and get it checked out. Uh, so, so we're at One more Street in, in Canberra, the centre of Canberra. Um, we're open ten till ten till uh, one on Thursdays and, and six to nine on Friday evening, So just come along. Of course, a lot of people who are listening won't be uh, in Canberra. So, I mean, there are there are other ways to get some information about um, about about drugs. Um, there are plenty of organisations around the country that might not do drug checking, um, but can certainly provide advice uh, about about using drugs and staying safe. You know, I'm thinking, thinking like organizations like Dancewise in, in Victoria and so on. Um, so there are some avenues to get a bit more information. Um, uh, so I'd encourage, I'd encourage people to, 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 to reach out wherever uh, possible.
1: And Malcolm, you've been looking at all these results coming through. What are they telling us about the quality of drugs in Australia? Like, are they painting a very different picture than what experts had expected, or is it, you know, pretty much as they had expected?
5: Oh, look, that's a that's a bit hard hard to to answer. I, I, I suspect, I suspect the 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 the, the high variability that we're that we're seeing um, in 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 drugs is is probably well known um, in many circles, um, but but where that information is is not getting is is to the people who use drugs. So. Um, you know drug checking is is a way that we can we can we can access um those people and and hopefully keep them a bit safer
1: and many people are surrendering their drugs like they come in, they find you know maybe it's not what they had thought it was, and they're disposing of them, they're leaving them there.
5: yeah, that happens on occasion, um certainly we've had a fair fair disposal rate um, not always, I mean some, some people who find something unexpected uh, might, might take it away and I guess in that instance we don't really know um, the, what, what, what happens in, in that case, so um, there is an evaluation of the, of the drug checking service going on and, and in that process there are some surveys and so on and maybe some later questionnaires, so we might get a bit more information down the track about what people did after, after their testing results, um, but yeah we get a fair few disposals. Um, especially when things are, are, are not expected, um, but
1: it's not uniform. All right. Professor Malcolm McLeod from ANU, really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us on Hack. No worries. See ya. And we've got some messages coming through. Someone says, is this another case of people creating synthetic drugs to get around legal definitions? Another person says, my mate was telling me everyone was on this new drug in a pub at Carumba
6: hack I don't want to get too technical but these are called
1: core memories. <gasps> it's a core memory on Triple J. Are there moments in your life that are just so burned into your brain? Like that movie Inside Out, core memories they were talking about. Recollections from your childhood that are so clear it's like they just happened to you. It's been a big trend on TikTok for a while, the core memory hashtag blowing up as people share their most memorable moments. What's one of your core memories? I'm interested to know. Like, mine's obviously my first bowl of pasta, sitting there as a little Italiano baby, saying, ciao, mamma, and things like that. But I'm wondering what yours is. Maybe you've got something, especially if it's really weird, like that. That isn't a real core memory. I made it up. But let me know, 0439 757 I wanted to know, are core memories actually a thing? Are these very specific memories? Do we only have a limited supply of them, like some people say? And do they tell us much about ourselves? Well, someone who knows is Professor Penny Van Bergen from the University of Wollongong. She's been looking into this and she's with us now. Penny, thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. There's been a heap of chat about core memories on TikTok this year over the past little while. What is a core memory?
6: So the idea of a core memory, at least on TikTok, is that these are these really important salient memories that sort of tell you something about yourselves. Um, and, you know, if you're going back to the movie Inside Out, they're, they're supposed to be connected to your personality. Um, there's this thought that maybe you've only got about five of them. Um, and so, you know, they, they have to be the ones that count. Um, and they've often got this really strong nostalgic element as well. Um, so that's kind of how they're framed. But we know from the memory science that that's not exactly how our memories work.
1: Okay. So, and do we have like a limited number of them or something like that? No. So that's one
6: of the myths that we can talk about. So we, you know, we do have memories that are more important and more salient um, to us than other memories, but we can have any number of those. And if, you know, if you wrote a list right now, you'd be able to think of, you know, at least 20 that are sort of really important to you. Um, So that idea that there's just five um, and that you know, you can replace one with another, Um, that tends to be a myth.
1: So you've been doing a lot of research into this, you know, whether core memories actually exist. What other things did you find?
6: So we know that that you're not limited in the number. We know that we've got a big long-term memory we can fit a number in. Uh, We also know that our earliest memories are not always the ones that will become most important to us. Uh, So we often have this sense that, you know, it's those first memories that kind of drive who we are and that are most central to ourselves. But we tend to have not the best memory for our childhoods. Even though we, you know, we we think back with nostalgia, we actually tend to have much better memory for the things that happen Um, kind of around the end of adolescence, the early 20s, this Uh, and it's called this reminiscence bump. So we get this real kind of um, grouping together of important memories around that age. Um, Often the memories from childhood are relatively mundane and they don't tend to sort of, you know, to tell us as much about ourselves as we think they do.
1: That's interesting. So there are like periods of your life that you're more likely to remember. That's, that's interesting stuff. We're getting some people messaging in about their core memories and questions as well. Someone says, do core memories tend to be traumatic or highly emotional? Is that something that, you know, you looked into, Penny?
6: So we know that there are, uh, you know, if you have a highly emotional memory, it's usually more easy to remember. And that's notwithstanding that, you know, some funny things go on with with trauma, which is sort of a little bit... um, you know i guess different to other types of emotional memories um, but if we're talking about just emotion emotion always helps us to remember you know that's why we remember things any emotional event is kind of you know something that we'll run and tell somebody about at the end of the day so emotion and memory are really closely tied together um, so you know when we're talking about those th- events that are important to us uh you know the time that you scored a kind of a home run uh, that that kind of thing there's probably an emotional attachment to those memories as well and we probably think of those you know there's high emotion at the time and there's probably probably. Probably emotion when we think
1: back on them as well. Some messages coming through. Someone else says, sounds like you're choosing your stats. Pick five core memories for your character to determine your story. Someone else, Dean in your minor, says, video store smell when I was a kid, popcorn, film tape, polyester it's a bit of an old uh, core memory happening there. Another person says, first memory in hospital the age of three. Whenever I visit the women and children's hospital in Adelaide, I get a flashback of the kids' playground. It is weird, the stuff that just sticks with you. I'm talking with Professor Penny Van Bergen from the University of Wollongong about memories, core memories, all that sort of stuff. Penny, how accurate, um memories generally. Like some of them, if you close your eyes, it feels like you're watching a movie. Is that detail real or is it our mind playing tricks on us?
6: That's our minds playing tricks on oh, us. Oh no. so we do. And it's also impossible to tell in most cases. You know, so some memory studies will set up particular events. Um even for children, you can have a staged event where you know exactly what has happened. And you can test their memory and see sort of how accurate it is. But for most things, we're never going to know if we're actually right or not. You know, the events pass and sometimes we have very different memories to somebody else and we're both convinced that we're right. Um, but, you know, what happens in, I guess, cognitive terms, what our brain is doing is when we encode the memory, when we put it into our brain, we're, we're taking parts of it. So we're thinking about the gist of it and we're kind of maybe capturing some of the really important details. Um, but then when we retrieve it again, we're putting it back together. So it's a bit like putting back together a jigsaw puzzle and maybe we don't have all of the pieces. So then we go searching through our general knowledge to kind of fill in the gaps. And every time we remember it, we sort of go back through that reconstructive process. So there's always potential to work in error and there's always potential to piece it back together a little bit differently to the way that we had in the first
1: place. Interesting. Someone on the text line says, I feel like after falling off skateboards and bikes so much as a kid, I don't actually remember much from being a kid. Someone else (laughs) says, I remember my sister being born when I was two years old, being taken to my neighbor's house while parents went to hospital. I was upset they gave me a snow globe to settle me in a dark room of my own. Are there people that tend to remember better than others? Like we know that there are conditions that can hit you later on in life that affect memory, but just generally with young people, are there some who do remember better or maybe there's things that you can do to increase the memory capacity? I don't know. There are.
6: Yeah, I mean, some people do just naturally kind of seem to remember more than others and will report a greater number of memories when they're asked in a lab. Um, that kind of idea of a really amazing, excellent memory um, that we see in movies sometimes, there are a very small number of individuals who do have this kind of amazing memory capacity um, and I'm talking about very, very small numbers. You know, there's kind of a, they get studied, um, you know, in the lab because they're so rare Um but even in those cases, the memory can be error prone, right? So you can have an amazing memory, it can be very detailed, um, but there's still the capacity for error. And the people who do have that very, very strong memory often say it's actually a real pain because they want to be able to forget things. Not everything is interesting, but there's a lot of clutter going on just because there are so many memories that are kind of coming up all the time. Um, so yeah, so that very rarely. I mean, in terms of um, becoming a better rememberer, though, we know that the more the better effortful the encoding so the more effort you go to when you're thinking about a particular memory um, and some of the ways you can do that are by practicing it by you know actually um, you doing some effort as opposed to just kind of um, having somebody else ask you a question you actually have to do some effort in order to same as when you're studying for an exam really the more effortful it is the better you're likely to remember that particular thing
1: interesting it's so so fascinating you've written a bunch about this you can find it online on the conversation professor penny van bergen from the university of wollongong Thanks so much for joining us on Hack.
4: Hack on Triple J.
1: Big thanks again to all of our guests, everyone who contributed to the podcast and the hardworking Hack crew as well. That's all for the Hack podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.